So good morning. Has everyone found John chapter 13, verse 21? All right. Well, why don't we stand and read the Word of God, starting at verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one from whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took, the, took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, what you, what you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was nighttime. Lord, uh, we are grateful for your word. And uh, today, Lord, as, as you know, in, in the preparations this week, will be more of a, maybe a, a, a theological sermon and more of a character study on Judas, Lord, and maybe more difficult for us to apply to our own lives. But still, we need to know the truths of your scripture, and we need to understand theologically how to work through someone like Judas's life and what that could mean for people we interact with in the Christian community and what it could mean even for our own lives if we're not careful. So I pray, God, that uh, as we study your word, that we are, we are excited by what we're learning, and I pray, God, that anything that's not from you, that you just keep me um, at bay in my words and, and remove those thoughts from my head. Look forward to our time together and a time of encouragement from you. In Christ's name, amen. One of the things I really appreciate about the Bible is that it doesn't try to portray itself as some kind of fairy tale. It's not some kind of sort of Disneyland kind of book that has a Prince Charming in every chapter and always ends with a happy ending. Um, as you know, the Bible doesn't hide from the ugliness of the realities of life and portrays uh, sometimes the, the ultimate depravity of people's sin and the devastating effects it can leave on people's lives. And while there's many categories, as you know, that the Bible speaks about, today we're going to look at the area of betrayal, uh, what it was for someone to be a, tra a traitor. Um, betrayal is not new to the Bible. Uh, we always think of Judas, but there's lots of stories of betrayal in the scriptures. Um, you might remember Absalom. He was uh, David's son. Um, David, uh, those of you doing the chronological reading will have come across him already in your reading. 2 Samuel chapter 15, Absalom... Um, who was David's uh, son, usurps up against his authority and tries to take the kingdom from him and tries to become king. Uh, Jeroboam, who was Solomon's uh, uh, servant, one of his main guys, uh, also betrayed Solomon and resulted in the division of the kingdom of Israel. Uh, I don't know if you guys, some of you know this, but the, the, the Israel was united at one point, and then through Jeroboam's treachery, um, Israel got divided into two kingdoms, a northern and a southern kingdom which in Jesus' day was, in, was still intact like that. But of course, none was more famous uh, than Judas. Judas is obviously the one that um, 
has the greatest rapport as being the betrayer, being the betrayer and the one we're going to deal with today. Now, I've already spoken on Judas once before, about a year and a half ago at Pine Ridge House in our combined service. So I'll be truthful with you. My, my temptation this week was to be, be really lazy. I thought, oh, I'll just do the old sermon. I did that before. I'll just do it again. <laughs> right? Take the easy way out. Then I thought about it more and more. I thought, well, that'd be of no benefit to you because those of you who have heard it would gain new, no new insights. But also it'd be of no benefit to me either because... It wouldn't allow God to teach me anything new about Him that I hadn't seen before. And I just want to say that I'm really glad that I spent the time re-looking at this and revisiting it. Because I do have some new insights into Judas that I hadn't known a year and a half ago. And I'm grateful for, for God for sort of teaching me new stuff. So while much of this content might be similar for a lot of you, um, and you will know it, you will also gain some new insights into Judas that you have not received before. I can guarantee you that. And of course, I'm going to make all of the attempts in my sermon today to be backed by Scripture because we all have great opinions about Judas. Lots of theological debate about him. And my sermon is going to go a little different route this today. Um, normally, I sort of heavily on the application towards us and how we live this out. Today, I'm going to talk more about sort of uh, an apologetic sermon, how to defend uh, what kind of faith Judas had. And the reason I say this is there's some really strong, prominent Christian people uh, in the United States and across the world who are like people I would respect and listen to um, and would trust, I guess, in, in many areas of theology, who believe that Judas um, was someone that never had a genuine relationship with God, uh, never knew Jesus Christ, and of course, they the, the, the define that because their theology states that because he ended so poorly, he could never have been a Christian in the first place. And so there's a lot of uh, controversy over Judas and whether he was predestined by God to hell and all these types of things. And so uh, I, I didn't know where I stood on that a year and a half ago, and then after studying him, came to a completely different understanding. And I've since been challenged by different people within the Christian community about that sermon in disagreement. <laughs> but um, like I said, again, I want to go back into it and revisit this issue of whether Judas had a legitimate faith. Was he truly a Christian guy that just betrayed Christ or was he just a bad apple right off the start? So I want to walk through that kind of question with you today. So before we dive in, let me help you remember the context from last week. So last week, you remember, it's the time of Passover in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus' death is just around the corner. And he gathers his disciples together for one last private meal together. This was known as the Last Supper. And uh, he felt it necessary to spend his final moments with them in order to provide them with some last-minute instruction, because these guys were going to lead the church um, after his death. And remember, in, in Jewish culture, too, that it was customary that before meals, servants would wash people's feet. And because this was a private event, no servant had shown up that day to wash anybody's feet. So, even though Jesus had taught the disciples on servanthood on more than one occasion, nobody clued in and took the initiative to do anything uh, before the meal started. So, Jesus gets up during supper, strips down to what, the attire of a slave, girds himself with a towel, and begins washing them all. And most incredibly, we talked about this, that he even includes Judas. One, his, his, this guy is going to betray him. He, Judas is part of the twelve who he washes his feet. 
This is a man that Judas or Jesus already knew in his heart was going to betray him. And the man that he defined in verse, eight, verse 18 is someone who is going to lift up his heel against him. In other words, turn his back against on him. But what's interesting from verse 21 is that even though Jesus knew that he was going to be betrayed, and even though it was necessary for the scriptures to be fulfilled that he would be betrayed, it didn't take the realities away of the emotional pain and the hurt over this betrayal. Look in verse 21. He said, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Now we've seen this word, word, word troubled before. It's given us trouble in our church. Um, it's the word terasso, which means to stir or shake up uh, in Greek language. And it means extreme agitation or turmoil or to be deeply upset. And so in chapter 11, remember the funeral at Lazarus, Lazarus' funeral? The Jews are weeping and Jesus' soul is troubled or greatly agitated emotionally over the state of the Jewish people's response. That here's the Messiah in their midst who's done many miracles and they're weeping in unbelief that Lazarus' death is final and imminent. And he was troubled by that. We see it in the triumphal entry in chapter 12. Um, looked at this about a month ago. Uh, he's, you know, he sees the realities of the cross and his soul is troubled. And what shall I say, say, Father, but save me from this hour? He's wrestling with this temptation to not want to go to the cross. And there's this emotional anguish over this. So we've seen this word terrasso, this word trouble come up. And here we go again. He's troubled once again because he knows that Judas, this man he's discipled for three years, one he's become close with, one he's poured his life into him, and he knows that he's going to be turned upon, turned upon him. And we see the humanity of Jesus in this, that he's, he's just gutted. He's gutted by this, uh, uh, this response from one of his closest loyal friends. It's important we know what he's going through here because those of us who have experienced betrayal, in our own lives, and I'm sure there's many of us, either on the perpetrator side or the victim side, know exactly what those emotions feel like. It's really tough to go through and face. So the question for us today then is, well, what happened to Judas? How has this guy that's been poured in, his life's been poured into by Christ, he's, he's seen the miracles, he's, he's witnessed his love and his compassion for people, he's just experienced this ultimate perfect friendship. How does this guy turn on turn on him so quickly and how did he get to this point well let's dive into the bio a little bit of a biography of Judas and uh, we'll see maybe what happened and who this guy was the first and only thing we know for sure about Judas before he became a disciple of Jesus was his father's name uh, in John 6 71 and in John 13 2 we see that his dad's name is Simon his dad's name is Simon. That's all we know about him prior to, uh, um, to him being a disciple of Christ. We don't know his mom's name. We don't know if he had siblings. We don't know what town he lived in, although there's some speculation by commentators where he's from. We don't know what his previous job was. I mean, he's a treasurer in Jesus's band of guys. He was a treasurer, but we don't know if he had previous experience with money in another job he did prior. It's all unknown, except for his father's name. But what we do know is that at some point in Judas's life, he had crossed paths with Jesus. He had met him somewhere, somehow. And clearly, Jesus had left an early impact on him. 
Look at Luke 6, verses 12 to uh, uh, 16. It says, Jesus went out on the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, who named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called a zealot, Judah, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. I want to point out a couple of things from this passage that shows you that he had clearly met, crossed Jesus' path prior to becoming an apostle. You notice in verses 12 and 13 here that it says, When morning came, Jesus called his disciples to him and then chose 12 to be apostles. See, sometimes people think he had 12 disciples and that's all he had. Jesus had many, many disciples. He sent 70 out. Remember, he sent 70 out to, to heal and to proclaim the gospel at an earlier point in his ministry. The 12 um, were his inner circle. But the fact that Judas was chosen out of many disciples to become the inner circle of 12 meant that he was, an, that he was already following Jesus earlier on before he was given an official title. So when Jesus was up on the mountainside praying, he was going through all these names and Judas became one of the main key guys. So again, he was already, he'd already bought into Jesus' teachings. He already thought he was somewhat trustworthy as a rabbi and was already following him at earlier times when he crossed paths. Um, and that's important to notice. The question then is where did they meet and when did they meet? Well, the New, Test New Testament doesn't tell us, but I can give you a couple suggestions. Um, perhaps he encountered Jesus through the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist had a ministry for six months prior to Jesus starting. And he was going through preaching a baptism of repentance for the one who was coming. And many of Israel would flock to, to John the Baptist to get baptized. So maybe Judas was one of those guys. And then when John the, baptized, John the Baptist pointed out Jesus, he knew who he was. And already had determined to follow him. Perhaps also, uh, Jesus, he followed Jesus because, uh, remember, Jesus had a parallel baptism ministry. Jesus, earlier in John, actually was baptizing at the same time as uh, John the Baptist in, uh, in Judea. So maybe he just encountered Jesus one-on-one -on -one in Judea, because maybe that's where he was from, and so he saw Jesus baptizing and heard his message, and so therefore followed him at that point. So again, it's hard to know what, which is true, if any of those things are true. But here's the key you don't want to miss. Judas was an early follower of Jesus and had bought into his teachings long before he became an apostle and long before he was chosen as one of the twelve. We want to learn something else from Luke 6 here, that Jesus didn't randomly select, uh, he wasn't randomly selecting people, he was carefully choosing people to be his inner twelve. So because he had many disciples, he was looking for specific men, and Jesus made this selection through careful prayer, spending all night on the mountain. We can see that in Luke 12, uh, 6, 12 to 13. So here's the point. He wasn't choosing a traitor. He wasn't choosing a traitor. He was choosing an apostle. It says in verse 16, look, this, look at this very carefully, and Judas Scariot, who became a traitor. So at the time of choosing of a, of a Judas, he was looking for an apostle. Later on, after the apostleship was given to him, he then became a traitor. Future tense, not then at that moment. That's very important to notice that. 
And, and let me just say this. It would have huge, huge implications to Jesus' uh, credibility if he was to choose a false teacher and apostle at the get-go. Can you think of any New Testament passage in which Peter and Paul, who are men trained by Jesus for ministry, ever spoke about allowing false teachers in the church? Does Peter and Paul ever in the New Testament books ever say, you know what, I know they're in here, just let them keep going, we're good with it. He says, get them out, get them out, get them out, get them out. Who did they learn their ministry from? Jesus Christ. Why in the world would Jesus Christ choose a false apostle to do an apostolic ministry and yet then teach the other men who later on in the New Testament to then contradict that? Huge implications to Jesus' credibility if he chooses a false apostle off the start. But I want to I want to also say this that it's important that we understand that because this is a legitimate ministry because Peter himself actually affirms that Judas' ministry was legit. He actually affirms his ministry is legit. Look at Acts 1, 24-25. Judas has killed himself. They're now trying to um, pick a new apostle. And then this is, the, what's, this is what the Peter and the boys are saying. They prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all men, who which one of the, these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry, an apostleship from Judas, who turned aside to go his own place. Here's the thing. Peter says this, Judas, an official, legitimate apostle, turned aside from that ministry. And now we have to choose him. Here's the point. If I were to say to you, uh, I'd like you to turn aside from something, you can only turn aside from that which you belong to. If you turn aside from uh, being a, uh, like a, in one job to move to another, that means you leave that job behind. You can't turn from something you don't belong to. So how can, if Peter's a, 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 this, if uh, the apostolic ministry was false and not legitimate, he would not have turned aside. He would have continued in the very thing he was doing, which was false teaching. And Peter says, we want to replace Judas with a guy in the same ministry category. So Peter, Judas had this ministry category called apostolic ministry. We want a guy to replace it, not replace a false one, replace a true legitimate ministry. Now I want to, I want to now spend time proving to you that Judas's ministry was legitimate and authentic and not false. This is incredible when you look at Luke 9, 1 to 3 and verse 6. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out demons and to cure diseases. And he, went, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Verse 6. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. I want to point out four things from this passage that shows you that, that, that uh, to further illustrate that his authentic, uh, Judas had an authentic ministry. The first one, notice there's no distinction made between the twelve in terms of power and authority given to them by Jesus. When he had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out demons and, and, and so on. It wasn't like eleven got it and Judas didn't. Judas is going into the same villages and doing the exact same thing as the other 11 guys are. Second, there's no distinction in the effectiveness of their ministry. They're all entering houses. They're all teaching the same message. 
they're all healing with the same frequency, magnitude, right? There's no distinction. Third, there's no record in the entire New Testament of any disciples telling Jesus that Judas's message was off. Man, when they come back, you know, Philip and Nathaniel are like, Jesus, you won't believe this. He was denying you're the Messiah. And he was denying the way to righteousness with God is through repentance. None of that. He didn't have a goofy gospel. He had the message right. Um, it wasn't like everyone was coming back and like uh, everyone was healed of demo- demons. And Judas's guys were all de- demonically possessed still after the, he came back, right? Jesus, you won't believe this. We all were casting out demons and Judas couldn't do it. No, there was no power like from him, from uh, in him. Like he was the only one, and all of them are still demon possessed. Let's go back to the village and get these guys right with God. None of that stuff. It was all equal in terms of magnitude and power. Fourth, the same could be said uh, true of Jesus. He never once took Jesus, Judas aside and said, "By the way, I've noticed something goofy in your teaching, goofing, goofy in your healing ministry." Nothing. When the apostles returned, actually in Luke nine verse ten. It says they all gave an account to him of all they had done. And Jesus then takes them privately off to another village and starts to go on in ministry again. There's not a single record in the New Testament of the disciples or Jesus reprimanding Judas for his quote-unquote inability to preach the same gospel and do the same healings. Now, for me, that's enough proof right there. Like, uh, for me, that's a legitimate follower of Jesus at that point. I've had conversations with people where that's still not enough evidence for them. So let me give you the two, what I'm going in crescent, uh, increasing order of magnitude of power <laughs> of uh, defense of the, God, of the scriptures. Let me give you my two slam dunk passages now to further substantiate this. It was legitimate ministry. And for that, we have to, as a church, turn to Matthew chapter 12, verses 22. Starting at verse 22. Go with me to Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. We're going to read together till 26. We all good? Matthew 12, 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he was healed, and he healed him. So that the mute man was spoken saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Here's a question for you, or a statement for you. If Jesus, in his casting out of demons, uh, was not, uh, let me rephrase this. The accusation against Jesus was this. You must be satanic. You've got to be satanic. You're demon-possessed. And Jesus says, actually, think of the logic in that. I can't be demon-possessed because if I do that, I'm dividing my kingdom. Why would an unrighteous, demonic person cast out a demon? You're, you're, you're killing your own kingdom because you're fighting against each other. Here's the thing. If Jude, Judas was not legitimately right with God, and he's casting out demons, and he's not right, he's dividing his own kingdom. So here's, here's Jesus saying, 
You're, it's ludicrous in your thinking to think that I'm casting out demons in the name of Satan. So therefore, it would be ludicrous if Judas was a traitor, betrayer, treacherous guy who was predestined by God as an unrighteous person to be casting out demons in Luke 9. He's dividing Satan's kingdom and it doesn't work. It's contradictory. If, if, if not making sense, I can help you. Uh, try to, I can try to do a better job in the discussion. But here's the crazy thing. So that, that, that'd be my first thing. It makes no sense for, 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 for uh, Judas to do this because he'd be dividing Satan's kingdom. And Jesus says, that's impossible. It doesn't work. Secondly, though, and I think the strongest of all the arguments for him being legitimate is Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Ten sixteen. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And you might think, well, who in the heck are the sheep? And sheep in the Bible is always in reference to Christian people, correct? Look at the previous verses starting at verse 2 and 3. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these. Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. In verse 2 and 3, he says, these are my twelve. In verse 16, he turns around and says, I'm sending you twelve out as sheep amongst wolves. You're legit. You're legit, Peter. All right. Um, you, you you can't. You're not a wolf. I, I, I mean, in in, uh, in the New Testament, false teachers, false apostles are described as wolves, or sheep in wolves' clothing. He says, "You're not a wolf. You're a sheep." Let's turn back to John now, verse chapter thirteen. John chapter 13. So you can see why after three years of investing in this guy, on the night before his crucifixion, when Jesus announced to the disciples in verse 21 that one of them was going to betray him, while the disciples in verse 22 began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. And why in 23 and verse 24... Peter turns to John and says, do you know who it is? And Peter's like, I don't know. And Peter turns to Jesus and said, who is it, Jesus? Again, so even though Jesus start, Judas started out well, he started out well, we can't ignore, though, the fact that something radically went wrong with him. And he did turn his back on Jesus. We can't ignore that. So the question is, what happened? Well, the New Testament never records why. But I have a good suggestion that I think would be fair from Scripture. And it's based on the fact that Judas was likely guilty of what the rest of Israel was guilty for. We've seen it through, the, through John this whole time up. What's the problem with the Jewish people with Jesus? He's not meeting their expectations as the Messiah. They wanted a political movement, a military campaign. They wanted economic uplift. They wanted him to take some flex his muscle against Rome. 
and nothing gets done. In fact, all Jesus does is talks about how he's going to suffer as the Messiah and how he's going to be crucified. And that people turn their backs on him because this is not who they signed up for. This is not the Messiah they expected from the Old Testament. And Jesus is letting them down over and over again in terms of his mission. Perhaps Judas, just like the rest of Israel, saw that as a follower of his, he had nothing to gain. What he expected to gain in terms of being in power as one of the inner twelve and get, like, liberate, be liberated from Rome. Perhaps he just got disenchanted with Jesus because this wasn't going to happen. And so he increasingly got embittered towards him. And so these thoughts of betrayal just crept in in his mind. Furthermore, by this point, Judas had a major character flaw going on in his life that made the idea of betrayal even more attractive. And that was his deep love for money. Uh, we know that Judas was a treasure. We already talked about that. Actually, in John here, it says that um, in 29, they were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him these things. So again, he, he was the treasurer. He kept the, all the missionary funds were in his control. Um, but we know from John chapter 12, with, with, at the dinner with Martha and Mary and Lazarus, uh, when they, his feet were anointed, um, uh, that uh, it said there that Judas would frequently dip his hand into this money box and steal from it and pilfer from it. So we don't know how long into the ministry Judas started to steal from, the, from them, but by the end of the three years, this is definitely a problem in Judas's life. And probably the event that was the last straw for Judas, where he just finally said, I've had enough of Jesus, was the night of that anointing of his feet with Mary. Because remember, she had a very costly bottle of perfume. It was worth one year's wages. She breaks it, on, uh, breaks it, pours it on Jesus, and anoints him. And he's irate. He's infuriated because he's thinking, man, one year's wages, and I'm the treasurer? How much money have I just lost out on being able to pilfer because you just wasted it on Jesus Christ? So I suggest events such as this, um, such a... a, such a um, well, yeah, that kind of event that night was like the last straw for him. And that coupled with his disillusionment over Jesus' failure to be the Messiah expected, sent him down a path of willing to become a traitor and entertaining this idea. But the fact that Judas was already entertaining this idea was of no surprise to Jesus. And so when the disciples began asking him who, was, who it was, Jesus gave him a plain answer in 26. He said, This that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him, and therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Uh, well, act quickly, did Judas, uh, Judas actually did indeed, because a day later, Jesus was a goner. What can we learn from Judas? I think there's uh, two main lessons for us. And again, this helps us in our, in our theology and our way we defend uh, the Christian faith um, and understanding G uh, Judas in relation to Jesus. But the first lesson is, there's only two and they're very simple, but they're, they need to be stated. Lesson one, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Judas was a genuine believer. Judas, I'll give, you this, I'll give you my substantiations again, I'll mention in the sermon. First of all, Ju Judas, Jesus appointed Judas as an apostle. 
He would never put a false apostle in a position of power when he told Peter and Paul, or Peter and um, yeah, Paul, to get rid of them in the New Testament church. Secondly, in Luke 6.16, he says he became a traitor. He became a traitor. Future tense. He didn't start off as a traitor. He became one. Third, there's no record of any discrepancies in ministry effectiveness between Judas and the rest of the disciples. And Jesus never made any distinction either. Fourth, Peter recognized it in Acts as a legitimate ministry. He said he turned aside from his apostleship, but it was legitimate in the start, and we need a new guy to replace that authentic apostleship. Next point, I think it's the fifth point. The kingdom of God cannot be divided against itself. Sorry, the demonic, or yeah, the, any kingdom can't be divided against itself, I should say. So if Jesus was... was we said, I can't cast out demons in the name of, uh, uh, I can't cast out demons. If I'm satanic, that makes no sense. Judas, therefore, can't cast out demons, because that makes no sense if he's demonic <laughs> or on Satan's side. It's a contradiction. You're defeating your own kingdom. Why would Satan want that? He would never want a demonic person exercised. He's gaining victory over them. So for Judas to be casting out demons, it's opposition to Satan, not in alignment with them. And fourth, or sixth, I should say, and, and, I, and I think is the absolute strongest, strongest point. Je- Jesus says, Send, I'm sending you sheep amongst, out as wolves. And Judas is named in the twelve. Lesson two. A genuine follower of Jesus can, through their own volition, walk away from that relationship. Judas did it. And theologically, I never used to think this. I actually sat in a room about eight years ago, nine years ago, somewhere in there. Might have been ten, who knows, my math's bad. Uh, But I was at least between eight to ten years ago in a room with a man. And we got in this discussion and I told him that he could not lose his relationship with Jesus Christ because that's permanent. And I went and I gave all the passages to support it. And then this fellow says, well, that's not the way I was. I, I don't know about that. I, and he gave me his rebuttals. And this guy was actually in danger. So I asked him this question. I said, what would, I said to him, what would happen if, Jesus, if you were to stand before Jesus today? And the guy said, I don't know. I don't know. Because he knew he was, in, he was in rocky turmoil with the Lord. And then when I said, you're safe, don't worry. He said, well, I don't know about that. So it was like, whoa, the guy that's in danger is actually saying, I don't know about that. And I'm trying to promise him those things. And then I go and read the Old Testament. And I can't find a single Old Testament passage to support my New Testament theology. And then I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm, God's teaching me, teaching me, teaching me. And then, uh, and then um, anyway, I started to find a mentor that could help me walk through these, my, my, my new understanding. But here's the point. Judas uh, poses a major problem for many. But the problem is he is a legitimate case of this lesson and, and being fulfilled. And I think the reason why he's so, what's interesting about him is that uh, when, when people look at Judas, they define him by the scriptures at the end of his life. Because Satan entered him here, entered him there. Jesus described him as being a devil in John chapter 6. They define Judas by the end of his life, and therefore, because the theology says you can't walk away from Jesus, he must have been that in the beginning. They don't address the passages I gave you today in the sermon. How many of you have ever heard those passages before about Judas today? 
probably never, to support where he was. Because we don't want to look at those because our theology, it would have pushed me too. Ten years ago, I would have hated those. I wouldn't know how to deal with that. But I had to be teachable and open to, the, to what the scriptures were saying. And I'll conclude with this. It makes sense, right? Adam and Eve did it. Adam and Eve were in right relationship with God. No sin in nature, if you, for lack of a better word, at all. Satan walks in, tempts them, and they die spiritually. The only reason why Adam and Eve have a chance of being in glory is because God in the garden made a provision for them through animals. And hence the Old Testament sacrificial system started from that day forward. Adam and Eve fell to Satan's temptation and were spiritually dead apart from Jesus' work on the cross. If Adam and Eve could fall, how come we can't? And how come Judas can't? And I'll leave you with this passage. And this was the passage that shook me up and changed my theology. And this, I was in a tailspin for a few months when I read this. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. This is in support of lesson number two. The problem in Ezekiel's day is Israel's in a huge amount of mess. And a lot of people in that time would have thought generational sin, right? If, if you have parents that are sinners, then when you have children, what's their fate with God? Are they toast or not? Right? And then if those people have children, what's their fate? Are they toast or not? You inherit your parents in spiritual unrighteousness. That's kind of the thing. And so, in chapter 18, Ezekiel starts to teach Israel how God deals with individuals. On an individual basis, and not a, not a sort of family passed on generational issue. And so he starts telling uh, Ezekiel what he does in terms of his judgment, and then Ezekiel's passing it on to the people. Look at, look at um, verse 4, chapter 18, verse 4. This is uh, the prophet speaking. Behold, all souls are mine. Oh, God speaking. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul whose sins will die. So look at verse 5. If a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness and does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman during her menstrual period. If a man does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge and does not commit robbery but gives bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing, does not lend money on interest or take increase, if he keeps his hand from iniquity and executes true justice between man and man, if he walks in my statutes and my ordinances so as to deal faithfully, he is righteous and will surely live. So in that category of a man, if you are righteous and you continue to practice righteousness, you will live. You're good with God. Then he, so then the question is, what happens if he has a son who's a, who's a, like a, door, a doorknob? Okay, verse 10. Then he may have a violent son who sheds blood. And so he goes on his list of his sins. Look at verse 13. 
he will not live. He has committed all these abominations. He will surely be put to death. His blood's on his own head. Okay? So, righteous dad does righteousness. Righteous stays righteous. Has a son who's wicked, and he continues to sin. Then he dies, and he descends on his own head. So here we have an unrighteous man staying unrighteous. Then this guy in 14 has a son. Now he, he, is observed, uh, he has a son who has observed all his father's sins which he committed, but observing them does not do likewise. So now the grandson starts to watch his dad who's unrighteous, sees all the things he's doing, and he doesn't practice them. What does God do with that guy? Verse 17 at the very end. He will surely live. Then he goes to verse 21. But if the wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. He shall not die. So basically what he's doing is he's going through all the categories. If a righteous man practices righteousness, he stays righteous. If a wicked man starts practicing wickedness, he he will pay the penalty for his wickedness. And then he gives another category in 14 of a guy who, 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 um, or yeah, those are the two categories so far. But then look at verse 24. This is interesting. When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and does not does according to all the abominations that a wicked man does, will he live? Will he live? And he says, uh, he says, no way. All his righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered for his treachery which he has committed, and his sin which he committed, for them he will surely die. This guy starts off righteous, starts sinning, and he says he will die because of it. And then verse 27, he flips it on his head. What if a wicked man turns from his way? When a wicked man turns away from his wickedness, which he has committed and practices justice and righteousness, he will save his life and he will live. See the four categories? Righteous, ends up, practices righteous, ends up righteous. Wicked, starts off wicked, practices wickedness, ends up wicked and dies. Person who's unrighteous, who practices righteousness, becomes righteous. And the fourth category, those who practice righteousness and turn from that and, be, and, will, and go wicked will, will eventually die. See, there's four categories there. Now what's interesting, my commentary in my Bible, who comes from an opposite theological standpoint from me, says this. The next scenario is a righteous man, this is verse 24, this is the next scenario is a righteous man turning to a life of sin. His former apparent righteousness was not genuine and God did not remember it as valid. He says, he wasn't, so in other words, he's a faker. He's a faker. He, he was never saved in the first place. The problem is, listen to verse 5, the definition of a righteous man from the same commenta- commentator. The definition of righteous here is given in specifics, verses 6 and 9. Such behavior could only characterize a genuine believer who is faithful. So the definition of righteousness in verse 5 is, this is a characterizes a believer who's faithful, but when the word righteousness occurs in 24, he's like, no, 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 that's not the, that's not the same word anymore. <laughs> he's faking it. Listen, if you're faking it, you're never a Christian to start with. That means in the, in the category of wicked, staying wicked. And Ezekiel is dealing with all four scenarios. So this guy's own theology is throwing him off because he won't allow this, the passage to speak the truth that's being said from here. So again, I'm saying all this just to give you fuel and an understanding of how to have, enter into these conversations if you have to. I want to prepare you in defense of being able to speak about Judas in your discussions.